Uh, I was thinking during the singing that song at both services that uh, one of the highlights of the pastor's conference that you allow me to attend in Minneapolis each year with John Piper. This year there were 1,800 pastors from 1,600 countries. Sorry, 16 countries. 1,800 pastors from 16 countries. But singing that song with that many uh, pastors is, is worth, worth the trip. Uh, and so we, we've sung that a variety of times there. I would like to ask you to pray about something, and that is that we are trying to get John Piper here to speak at the Covenant Care Banquet. And I assume we've still not heard from him. Is that right? Uh, we, he spoke here 10 or 12 years ago, and at that time told Iris Archer or the board to wait five years and invite him back. Well, during that, that many years, he rarely speaks to outside groups and then only to huge groups. Like he spoke at Passion in Atlanta over Christmas. That was 45,000 people. He spoke to the Campus Outreach National Conference at Christmas time in Chattanooga. That was 4,500 people. We, we really think if, if he would come back here, it, it could probably double the attendance at that banquet because so many young people read his books. So Jill, the director, wrote a letter asking him to come. I wrote a letter to go with it. I threw every argument. I threw guilt, obligation, theology, pragmatic. His wife's from Barnesville. Barbara talked to his wife when we were at the pastor's conference, and we just pled our case. And the good news is we've not heard from him. So we've not gotten a no yet. But I, I really, I'm seriously asking that, that you would pray that he would either come this fall or the next. And uh, because since he was here, there's a, there's a large segment of college-age people especially that read and listen to his materials. And I think that would be a good thing. Uh, speaking of which, let's turn to God's Word, to 1 Timothy chapter 5. While you're turning there. 1 Timothy chapter 5, as I continue going through uh, this, my hope was to finish before the missions conference. I don't think I'm going to make it unless I can cover chapter 6 in one sermon next week, which I, and that ain't going to happen. So uh, today I want to finish chapter 5, and I must say that when one of the benefits of, of teaching through books of the Bible, which I try to alternate with subject systematic kind of things, is you do end up dealing with passages of Scripture that would be easy to, to just pass over for one reason or another. Such is the passage before us today because it, is, it seems very specific to issues related to elders in the church. But I think you'll see there's application for all of us here. I'll begin reading in verse 17 of 1 Timothy chapter 5. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. <clears throat> Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach, 
and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So ends the reading of God's Word. Last week I uh, preached on the first half of this chapter, which deals with widows. And you'd think that people walk away, I'd hope they heard the gospel and eternal truth that has bearing. Apparently the only thing you people heard that were here was reflected in the fact that after the sermon, I've never had more people extend to me a wet rag handshake. You need to listen to the CD if you want to find out what I'm talking about. So let me know what, what stuck with you after the sermon. Here we deal with elders in the church, and particularly those who teach and preach, the pastors. Though the term elder, overseer, bishop, those are used interchangeably in 1 Timothy and elsewhere in the scriptures. Here it's going to, get, it's going to zoom in on those of us like me who, whose primary calling is preaching and teaching. And the first part he deals with in verses 19 and 20 is the remuneration of ministers. Pay, compensation. And he introduces this important section by saying, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, to one degree or another, all elders do all the work of ruling. They pray for the work of the gospel. They teach biblical doctrine within the church. They chart a vision for the the church's future. They warn wayward sinners. They welcome back those who repent. So to one degree or another, the elders all do the same things. But there's a distinction that's made here between, you might say, two kinds of elders, what we in the Presbyterian Church call teaching elders, i.e. pastors, and ruling elders that are simply elders who may teach, but that's not their primary role as an elder. And so in our church, in the Presbyterian Church, we have teaching elders and ruling elders, though the qualifications for both are very, very, if not close, if not identical. Now, I mentioned they labor hard. That's a word that means strenuous effort. This is a difficult thing. It requires concentration. It requires effort. Now, all ruling elders, according to chapter 3, are to be qualified for such as to be able to teach or apt to teach. That's one of the qualifications. But only some have preaching and teaching as their primary calling, primary vocation. But the main point here is that some deserve double honor. Double honor. Now, the biblical word for honor is the word from which we get the word honorarium, a compensation for something someone does. So what is this double honor? Does that mean double pay? Well, I think it, I think it means it's a broader term than that. Honor can also mean include receiving that person's counsel. It it can include even receiving that person's correction. Uh, Another form of respect or honor is to encourage a pastor. I read where one pastor, I've never met him, I know of him, he said he'd never forget the time that a friend in the church where he pastored sent him and his son to a professional baseball game. He said that was one of the most meaningful things that had ever happened in his whole life. Uh, A number of you practice encouragement to those of us who are pastors. And believe me, that is not taken for granted. Well, what about compensation for pastors? Uh, I grew up in an environment where uh, 
at least at that time. Uh, pastors, pastors in my dad's eyes, uh, were not respected. Uh, and yeah, and I kind of I grew up with that, especially with compensation. The house I grew up in, all the doorknobs were broken in the house, interior doorknobs. And I did not know. And I grew up there from the time in the second grade. I did not know that. The previous owner, the man who built the house, his wife apparently was unfaithful with a pastor in town. And the husband had busted every doorknob searching for her at times in the house. And it was, uh, why am I telling you that? It, it, I did not grow up in an environment that held pastors in high regard. Not, I, I, didn't, I didn't see that side of things. And I worked in a clothing store when I was in high school. And there was a local pastor that I, I did not know him. He pastored in a, another uh, church, another denomination from the one my mom dragged me to. And he would come in for a suit that the owner would give him once a year. And there, uh, I'd see this man come in, and then when he would leave, there'd be uh, derisive uh, statements, critical statements made. The owner had told him, once a year, I'll give you a suit. Come in. And so when the man did what the owner told him to, then there would be kind of insulting comments made when the man would leave. So this whole area of compensation for pastors was, was not something I'd ever thought much about. And so there's helpful, then I became one. Now I am one. Now how, how do we deal with this? Well, know what the Bible says here. Uh, what about compensation? Paul has already warned that men to be elders are not to be greedy. In fact, if a person loves money, that disqualifies them from serving. So what's supposed to happen? <clears throat> well... There are some churches that do sin in how little they pay their pastors. This is not one of them, First Presbyterian Church. I was reading Christianity Today some time ago, and it told of a young pastor in Montana. He was married, three young children. His name was Steve, and they tried to make ends meet in this small church in Montana. They tried to make ends meet living below the poverty line, his family barely scraped by, and then, as you know, if you're barely scraping by, all it takes is a major car repair or medical bill, and you're in a deep hole, and that's exactly what happened to them. He and his family were going on a week of vacation, and the only way they could do a week of vacation was to take a class at a seminary, and they were to drive to Colorado for this class, spend the week there, and just before they were to leave, the transmission in their car went out, and they received a surprise medical bill, and so... The night before they had planned to leave, he and his wife sat on the deck of the house they rented and just wept and said, there will be no trip. They did take a trip. They went to a relative's home a few hours away and stayed in their basement. That was their vacation for the week. Well, eventually Pastor Steve went to the church board, asked for some kind of a raise. The board begrudgingly agreed to a small raise, but it was not large enough to meet the family's monthly expenses. And so the board recommended to Steve that he apply for assistance from Montana Power Company to help pay his utility bills. They also told him if he needed more money, he ought to become a chaplain with the National Guard. They explained, after all, it's only one weekend a month. Now, the irony, not that those were bad suggestions, but the irony was that the income of the church very much exceeded the expenses, and there was plenty of money in the bank. It was not a poor church. It was just a poor attitude. And so as you can guess, it did not take long before Steve was considering leaving the ministry. And he was a good man. He was not a charlatan. He was not uh, 
He was an honest, good man just trying to serve the Lord. But the church, in that case, led him into temptation uh, through an example like that. I knew of a case where a young man felt called to a, to, to a church ministry and uh, to plant a church. And in this case, the ruling committee of the presbytery, now I'm not talking about a congregation, I'm talking about other pastors and ruling elders. They, for whatever reason, beknownst to me and to him, decided that they were going to offer him the job, but intentionally lowball it on the salary. And then if he accepted the job, then they immediately raised the salary. So when they gave him the offer, he had been praying about this. He had done all the demographic work. He was going to go to the city and start the church. He really had been, he had talked to me about it years before this was to happen. That he had a goal, a vision, kind of to plant a church in this particular city. And they said, we want you to go. Here's how much we'll pay. He said, there's no way I can move my family there for that amount. He had to turn it down. That was it. End of story. Now, that's, there, thankfully, examples like that are not all too common. But so there's a principle here. Here's the principle I want you to think about. And it's given in two short terms that come from farming. They come from the agricultural word, world. Uh, He says, the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And the laborer, here's the second principle, the laborer deserves his wages. Now, the first quotation about the ox and the grain is a direct quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 25 in the Old Testament, which basically says, when there's this beast of burden, this ox helping with the harvest, then the animal is entitled to to nibble some of the grain every now and then. He deserves, you might say, this animal deserves a share of the proceeds. Besides, he will work harder and longer if he has something to eat. Now, we can all get that, right? And so Paul is telling Timothy, if it's fair with livestock, it's fair with with pastors. (laughs) They should be given enough to live. He says. Now the second quotation comes from Jesus himself. The laborer deserves his wages. Now this came from when Jesus was sending his disciples out two by two to preach the gospel in a variety of places. And he tells them in advance, don't take any money with you. Don't take any money with you, he says. Instead, Jesus said, stay wherever people would give you room. In other words, as you go, as you minister... You stay when people invite you into their house. That's where you'll stay because, Jesus said, the laborer deserves his wages. I'm not making that up. It's in Luke 10. It's in Matthew 10. It's in 1 Corinthians 9. So ministers of the gospel are like farmhands. They deserve room and board in exchange for hard labor. The principle is that every minister should have his basic needs met. Now, what's a good rule of thumb? in this day and age, in America. Obviously, we're a far cry from what it would be in Haiti or Eastern European countries and so forth. Here's a good rule of thumb. You ought to pay the pastor roughly an average of the congregation. They shouldn't be the poorest, and they certainly should not be among the wealthiest. Somewhere in the middle where the person can do their job undistracted. Uh, A number of years ago, I was with Sandy Wilson, We've had Sandy here to speak. Sandy pastor, Second Presbyterian Church in Memphis. Big church, 
lots of resources. Sandy is a great guy. He's a pastor's pastor. I, I look to him as one of the leaders in, in the Christian world today. In the meeting, Sandy said, we're going to meet at this uh, dining club. He's a member of a private dining club. So it was in this pretty high-rise built, not too high-rise for, for Memphis, but we're in this nice place, and Sandy was a member, and that's where this meeting took place. And I thought, this is very fitting for Sandy. This fits this church and this ministry. But if you were to transfer that to Macon, Georgia, or to Perry, Georgia, this would not fit. It was not fit at all for the pastor to do this. That was my opinion. So, all right, enough on that. He should receive a livable wage, a livable wage. Then he goes on, second, talks about remuneration. Now he's going to talk about, what about accusations? What about when one of these guys is not too hardworking? What if he's one of the false teachers that, that Paul has already written about? There was a problem in Ephesus with delinquent elders. Although Timothy must deal with them, it says he must not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So now we move to instructions on how to receive a complaint against an elder. How should you receive a complaint against me or a pastor or one of the elders in the church? Here's the way to do it. He tells us how to do it. And it sounds as if the elders are getting special treatment. It's really not special treatment because the Bible always insists when there's an accusation that it only be received on the basis of at least two witnesses. Deuteronomy 19, 2 Corinthians 13, both say only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. But what is unique about elders, unique about pastors, is they are not even to be accused unless there are multiple witnesses. So it's not that they're not only to be convicted, they're not to be accused unless there are multiple witnesses. Now there's great wisdom in this. And it's very timely because we live in such scandalous times as we do in the U.S. with media and the speed of information and social media and when things cannot be documented or proven and people can basically say what they want to and they can hide behind their screen name and you don't even know who's saying what they're saying. So it can happen in the church. Now, one reason this area should really be dealt with tenderly is because it, there's a spiritual warfare involved too. Listen to these words by John Calvin. Even though the internet did not exist in Calvin's day, he, he had great wisdom that still applies. Calvin wrote, None are more exposed to slanders and insults than godly teachers. This comes not only from the difficulty of their duties, which are so great that sometimes they sink under them, or they stagger and halt or take a false step so that wicked men find many occasions of finding fault with them, but added to that, even when they do all their duties correctly and commit not even the smallest error, they never avoid a thousand criticisms. It is indeed a trick of Satan to estrange men from their ministers so as gradually to bring their teaching into contempt. You hear that? Satan wants to estrange men from their ministers to bring the message into contempt. We may initially think it's a personality thing, but it's far deeper, at least what Calvin was saying from a demonic standpoint. In this way, 
by being estranged, not only is wrong done to innocent people whose reputation is undeservedly injured, but the authority of God's holy teaching is diminished. So you get, get the point. What Calvin is saying is there's not only an estrangement from the minister if someone falsely accuses him, but then this person maybe unwittingly is also being estranged from the gospel, from the message. This does not mean that teaching and ruling elders are above the law. Quite the opposite. For the fact that they receive special protection from slander makes their sins all the more reprehensible. And so the next verse says, verse 20, As for those who persist in sin, that is speaking of elders who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. It's it's describing a repeat offender here. They're persisting. This is not a one-time occasion. If the charge against a repeat offender can be proven, then that sin should be brought out into the open and publicly rebuked, though the public rebuke is a last resort. So first, an elder should be reproved privately, especially if the sin is a private one. But if an elder refuses to repent of a notorious sin, then he should be publicly rebuked. Last week, John Kinzer put in my hands an old book. It's, uh, it's about that thick, and it's entitled something like uh, The History of the Presbyterian Church in the State of Alabama. And I opened it up and just began reading about the 1850s and what life was like for everyone then. This is when the railroad's still being built, and that was the topic, the main topic of conversation they always talked about was the expansion of the railroad and so forth. And, and inevitably, when I was reading about the churches in places like Tuscumbia and down toward Montgomery, it was all about church discipline, carrying out disciplinary um, procedures. I've asked Harriet Comer here before to to read some of the church minutes that are filed with the state. Uh, From the 1850s, I was looking for information about the revival that took place all all over the United States in the 1850s. And it was the same year that revival broke out that this building was built in 1858. And from what you've told me, Harriet, I was hoping to find evidence in our sessional minutes of revival and huge increases of membership because that was taking place in many... But she said, Chip, all I found were procedures about church discipline. It was, you know, this person and that and cases. And when I read that from Alabama, there were cases brought against pastors and they would... The session then would be a court and they would go to the presbytery and where if they were accused of pastor of stealing money or some, some kind of lying or whatever like that. And we look back and say, ooh, how harsh they were. No, maybe they cared about people more than we do. Maybe they cared more. Maybe they cared enough for that person's soul that they wanted them to be warned thoroughly in this life before the judgment that's bound to come, as Paul says, in the next. So when a scandalous minister, it says in verse 20, when he's rebuked in front of the entire congregation, and that is the rest, meaning the rest of the elders, no doubt you would take notice of that if you were in the congregation. And here's the desired result. They will stand in fear, fearing not only the consequences of sin, but also of God himself. That's in the Bible, folks. We don't like to talk that way today. All we want to talk about is grace and mercy and forgiveness, which is all through the Bible. 
But there's an element here where, where notorious sin among a church leader is to be dealt with um, in a very prominent way, it says, when it becomes a, a public sin, so that others will stand in fear that I need to watch what I do. I have need to be careful. Now, Timothy may have been a little afraid himself when he read the apostles' instructions. It might have been tempting for Timothy to lock himself away in his study. I know that feeling. Hope the problems will go away. Just ignore them long enough and they'll vanish into thin air, but rarely do problems ever go away by themselves. So he gives him a solemn warning in verse 21. He's speaking directly now. This is Paul, Timothy's mentor, writing to him, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So Timothy, when it comes to discipline within the church, you must be even-handed. It must be just. It cannot be with prejudice. Be careful not to entertain an unfair accusation even if you think it might be true. But on the other hand, don't sweep things under the rug just because the man accused is a friend of yours and is a fellow elder. Ministers are not to play favorites. An accusation against an elder must be judged solely on the merits of the case, period. Now, anyone who's ever been involved in a dispute in the church knows how difficult it is to carry these things out without partiality and to avoid choosing sides. Back to John Calvin. He said, There is nothing harder than to pronounce judgment with complete impartiality, so as to avoid showing undue favor or giving rise to suspicions or being influenced by unfavorable reports or being excessively strict and in every case to consider nothing but the matter in hand. So to help ministers remain impartial, the Bible gives a very strong warning about how church discipline is to be carried out. As in verse 21, it says, In the presence of God, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, etc., I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. So Paul takes Timothy into the very presence of God, into the throne room of God, because, folks, that's where we're all headed There will be a final judgment, and any discipline in this life is trying to help the person deal with something here before they get there. That's the whole purpose of church discipline and judgment in this life, is basically saying, deal with it now in this life before you answer for it eternally in the next. If God will render perfect justice at the end of history, then justice will be done, should be done in the present. Now, third area. Y'all still with me? Y'all here? Look how much you've learned. Compensation for pastors, accusations for elders, and now ordination of elders. And I think there's, uh, I I, I chuckled at this at the first service because... (laughs) It's like Paul is saying, okay, we'll deal with the compensation issue, then we'll deal with accusations and judgment. Oh, and by the way, if you want to avoid this one and you do, then you better get the right people. So that brings us to ordination. So we may suspect that the turmoil in Ephesus was stressful. (laughs) Because out of the blue, in verse 23, 
He says, no longer drink any water, only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Where did that come from? We're dealing with the judgment seat of God before the heavenlies and these... And suddenly, oh, by the way, Timothy, you know, don't just drink water, drink some wine with it. And then he picks right back up. And Now, the original Greek did not have parentheses. It did not, also did not have verses and chapters. Those were added much later by a man on horseback, Kinzer probably. You remember his name? Uh, John, John's our historian in residence. But there was a fellow that took the Greek New Testament and he divided it into chapters and verses. Sometimes the chapters don't line up where they're supposed to. And one of my Greek professors in seminary used to say, I guess the guy hit a bump in the saddle at that point and he, he put the wrong one. But here is this statement. He's talking about this and about ordination. And the commentaries I read this week had a field day with this. Uh, let me explain it to when Paul's talking and then he says, don't, because you've got these stomach ailments, uh, don't just drink water only. Use a little wine for your frequent ailments. Here are the things I read. And I'll tell you right, I'll give you my conclusion. I, hadn't, I have no conclusion. I don't know why Paul put this in at this point. It doesn't seem to fit. But on the standpoint that it belongs here, it belongs here because it shouldn't belong here. Who would have stuck that in and thought and they could have fooled anybody a century or two later? I, all right. Here's what the commentary said. Some said that because of the end of the verse right before it, where he tells Timothy, keep yourself pure, that maybe Timothy would have been thinking about asceticism. And so Paul immediately says, oh, by the way, drink a little wine. So don't think in terms of keeping yourself pure that the way to do it is by being an ascetic, which has already been dealt with earlier in the book. A second explanation is that given the harshness or the weightiness of what Paul is addressing, that Timothy was probably sitting there, you know, and the stomach acid's really going, and he's fully feeling pretty sick now by the time he's reading this, and Paul says, okay, all right, calm down here. Here's what you do. You take one of these and call me in the morning. I mean, it's like that. It's like he's saying, okay, Timothy, I know you're getting stressed out at this point, so, you know, drink a little wine, not just water. Then the commentaries went crazy over, yes, the Bible does not condemn drinking, but pages of the dangers of drinking alcohol. Well, what's, what's he saying here? I don't know why he put it right here, but it was a word to Timothy. And we can, we can draw from this. He certainly is not condemning drinking and alcohol. If you think the wine was grape juice, it wasn't, okay? Welch's grape juice was invented in the United States during prohibition as a non-alcoholic thing to use in the Lord's Supper, okay? So it's a little out of history if you'd stick that back in the first century. And to say that it wasn't alcoholic, how were they getting drunk in Corinth at the Lord's Supper? That wasn't off Welch's, okay? So, but before you champion Christian liberty with this, he says a little wine, okay? He doesn't say get plastered, Timothy, when you Drink a little. Don't drink water. Okay. So he deals with that, and then he comes back to the theme, don't be hasty of laying hands on someone. Laying hands is, in the New Testament is representative of uh, ordination, of setting a man apart for a particular office and responsibility. The laying on of hands as, as an elder is what it's talking about. So one of the best ways to avoid scandal in the church one of the best ways to avoid 
having to deal with discipline is get the right men in the first place. Don't be quick. Don't be hasty in setting a man apart to serve in this office unless you are sure that he's the real thing. One of the strengths of many African-American congregations and their churches is, is traditionally, it's not all that true now, but traditionally they have waited until a man is 40 years old until they would ordain him. Now, that's not true in probably in most evangelical denominations today. But regardless, we should always be careful. Here's how we do it in the Presbyterian Church in America, if you're not familiar with our denomination. This is how we ordain teaching elders. First, a man becomes a member of a local church, like First Presbyterian. And then those elders in that church can watch him and get to know him and testify to, quote, his Christian character and promise of usefulness in the ministry. Then he takes a step of call coming under the care of the board of elders, which is called a session. And at that point, he, quote, submits himself to the care and guidance of the presbytery in his course of study in a practical training to prepare himself for this office. So he first, I'm sorry, he comes under the care of the session, then under the presbytery. Next, he would be licensed to preach the gospel in the pulpits and ministries within a geographical area like ours is central Georgia. But before being licensed, he would be examined in these areas, his Christian experience, his sense of call to the ministry, and his practical knowledge of the English Bible, his understanding of biblical doctrine, and his ability to preach. Also during this time, he must complete a one-year internship in a pastoral ministry. Normally, he will earn a Master of Divinity degree at a Bible teaching seminary. But he will not be ordained until finally he's called to pastor or be on the staff of a particular church. At this time, he will be examined in his family relationships, his knowledge of the Greek and Hebrew, sacraments, church history, church government. Now, needless to say, all these requirements really do help to prevent a hasty ordination. The requirements for becoming a ruling elder in a church are less strenuous, but they are just as important. He must be nominated by a member of the congregation, and he's examined as to his life and his doctrine. Once the elders have approved of him as a candidate, he's presented back to the congregation for election, and ordination is a solemn occasion, not only for the man, but also to those who ordain him. And so he warns Timothy here. He says, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. He's basically saying, Timothy, you're going to participate with this, and to a certain degree, if you ordain the wrong people and they leads to scandal, you, in a sense, share in the responsibility of that. Well, the last two verses kind of describe four people, and I'll quickly go through these. First, he says, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. In other words, some people are just blatant sinners. They can be ruled out for church leadership from the outset. Just look at their life. I mean, they, they're just, they flaunt rebellion. And so he's saying, Timothy, you'll be able to spot those right away. That, that's really not the issue. 
and their reputation will precede them. Now others, it says, are less conspicuous. But the sins of others appear later, and especially in the church. Because we know how to sin and get away with it. And we can be shrewd. And so we find sophisticated sinners in the church. And in some sense take a while to surface. They've been there all along, but they were just kind of beneath the surface and hidden. And so he's saying, uh, when the peace of the church is disturbed or when there's trouble in the family, the sin will come to light. Therefore, the church should take its time to discern whether a man is really qualified to be an elder. Don't make a hasty uh, decision. In fact, if somebody's pushy, wanting leadership, that's all the more reason to be cautious. Third type of person. The positive side, good works are conspicuous. Sometimes people are, they're just truly godly and their good works just kind of shine, fruit from their life. Uh, they have strong gifts, they have servants' hearts, and it's obvious. It's obvious to everybody around them. But then there's a fourth group, and these people have good deeds, but they are more private about it and less conspicuous, and these are known only to God. And to apply this to ordination, sometimes men come... And they just seem to grow and grow and grow. And the longer they serve, the more, the more depth there is. And it's as though you only saw the surface of the, you know, of the iceberg at the beginning. And rather than being disappointed after a year or two, or you're saying, you know, they really weren't who we thought they were. It's not that the person being hypocritical, but there's just not as much depth. Others, you're just amazed. You just grow. And you, you stand like, wow, we did not know how much was really there. Probably the book by C.S. Lewis that more people quote. And when I speak to you, those of you that love to read C.S. Lewis, the book you, you like to quote and you read is The Great Divorce. Now, I read that years ago, and it didn't connect with me so much. It's the story of a traveler, and he's on a bus with a lot of other people, and they they go to, to, to heaven. It's a, it's a, it's a journey to, to heaven. You've got to have an imagination uh, to, to read this thing, but I recommend it. Well, anyway, in the story, this man travels to the outskirts of heaven, and he sees this most magnificent woman. She's right there on the outskirts of heaven. All around her are dancing lights. There are spirits around her scattering flowers about. There are boys and girls singing beautiful songs around this woman. And the visitor's talking to the guide, and he says to the guide, Is it, is it? He, he whispers to the guide, is this like the most amazing person? And the guide says, no, not at all. And the guide says to him, it's someone you've never heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith, and she lived at Golders Green. And so the traveler says, well, she seems to be a person of particular importance. And the guide says, aye, she is one of the great ones. You have heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are two quite different things. What Lewis was saying, there are, there are some great people, great people, that we won't know their greatness until we get to heaven. The only way we're really great with God is through the redemption through Christ. It's not that we earn it. It is through what Christ has done. Is your trust in him today? If so, then you have received his righteousness been imputed to you, and your sin placed on him as a substitute to pay the penalty for that. Having done that, we have new life. We have new purpose. And we care about things like the church. 
and how the church is, uh, is effective in the world. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for Christ, and it's through his life, his act of obedience, and his death, his substitutionary death, that we are made right with you. May our trust be in him and him alone. We pray that you would bless this local congregation and congregations all around the world. Give us attentiveness, give us commitment, give us courage, uh, give us hearts to, to care about the things that you care about. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.